Hi, this is Damon Pistolka, host of the Faces of Business, where I talk with interesting people sharing life and business experiences to entertain, engage, build community, and provide information to help others succeed. If you're interested in learning more about one of our guests or how we are helping business owners generate wealth and build businesses they can sell or succeed at Exit Your Way, you can find more information on our website, ExitYourWay.com, or by contacting me directly, Damon at ExitYourWay.com. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, everyone. Welcome once again to the Faces of Business. I'm your host, Damon Pistolka, and I am excited for our guest today because a couple things. First guest I've ever had from Thailand. <laughs> but also, today we're going to be talking about reducing founder business risk with none other than Andrew Stotts. Andrew, thanks for being here today. It's great to be here, and, and I'm happy to... Uh to help people reduce risk because that's one of the, one of the many things that I live for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it, this is going to be great to have you on because I think this is, this is an under, let's see, less known topic that I think we should bring more attention to. Mm. And we're trying to use my words, right? That's came out wrong, but so you, you a while ago, you founded a Stotts investment research and you're helping people with, with uh, business risk. But Andrew, let's start with your background, because I think it's really good to go back a ways and see kind of how you got to where you are today. So people can really begin to understand why they should listen to you about business risk. Well, <clears throat> I, uh, I grew up a poor black child, as Steve Martin said in his comedy show. No, no, that's not true. But I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and kind of, uh, let's say, a Midwestern life. My parents, my mother's, you know, a housewife, my father's working at DuPont. Mm -hmm. And I think the first kind of remarkable thing that happened in my life is I got addicted to drugs. And that happened at a very young age. <clears throat> and that took me down a rabbit hole that was pretty scary and painful. Oh and basically I uh, ended up in three different rehabs and then eventually got sober and clean at the age of 17. So an underlying theme in my life is that I almost lost my life at a very yeah. young age. And so, and I've been, you know, I haven't drank or done any drugs now for 40 years. So I would say it's, it's hard to break away from that, that underlying theme, which also, I would say I had the the benefit of being able to reboot my life. You know, I mean, we're all messed up in the more in, yeah, in, the, yeah. in our youth. Like we're messed up by either our parents or our friends or our school or our teachers or some idiot along the way that mistreats us in some way. Mm -hmm. We're all messed up. And I had a chance to stop, face it, deal with it, and then leave it behind me. And so I think that's been the key to my my happiness in life is that when I got out of that rehab and my parents said, well, now you can go out on your own. And I didn't have any money or anything like that. And I lived, you know, I worked in a factory and, and all that, but, but I was happy, you know, and I, that, that helped me because I know in the world of business, we have our ups and downs and you can be stripped of everything. And I've had times where I've lost almost everything in 1997. We had the 97 crisis in Thailand 
which I'll, I'll talk about how I, I came here. But the point is, is I was pretty much almost stripped of every asset I had, but I wasn't stripped of my happiness. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that that core foundation of, you know, serenity and happiness is, is what's key. It doesn't mean it's not painful. Yes. It doesn't mean I wasn't, you know, I mean, I definitely had depression at a time and my sister passed away right in the heat of that moment. And it was just like, it was brutal. But when we had the tools and when we've been through it, you know, uh, yeah. so I always, you know, start off by recommending everybody who's anybody who's got, you know, things in their past that they haven't dealt with, you know, you, you can run away, you can run from them, but ultimately when you turn and face them, they almost wither away, but we very, very rarely turn and face them. And I think that's the same. That's probably what I bring to my life and to my business and all of the stuff I do is that I'm fearless to turn and face, you know, the challenges that I see. Mm -hmm. That is, it is, it's interesting that you say that about turning and facing and I, man, I commend you for overcoming that and, looking at that at 17 as a reboot and a real opportunity to go back and, and go, how am I going to do things differently going forward? Um, and I was reading the other day, it was, it was, I forget the book about it, but it actually was talking about this. When you, if you don't go back and look at your past and you don't deal with that and then make amends or recreate that into something that positive like you came out of it. It helped me to reboot and do that. It said it, it haunts you forever, but if you go back and really face it and address it and move beyond it, it's, it's something that can help you go forward. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I hear <clears throat> a lot of people talk about, you know, leave the past behind and, you know, focus on the future and all that. My own experience was by turning and facing it <clears throat> and dealing with it then I was able to, you know, resolve it permanently. And that's yeah. where I think you get a level of serenity in life. And so for anybody listening or viewing, you know, I would challenge you if you are facing a problem in your life, personal, professional, you know, take this as some inspiration that, you know, turn, face it. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to solve it all in one day, but acknowledge it write it down. You don't have to even talk to anybody else about it. Just write it down and start that process. And that's one of the things <clears throat> that I do with uh, companies uh, here where I am in Thailand, when I work with companies in Thailand and, and around the region, around the world, basically what I try to do is I try to get them to face their financial situation. Mm -hmm. And they, I, I don't know, have a solution and they may not have a solution, but if we face it and we see it consistently, it's very hard not to deal with it. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. That's for sure. Wow. That's, that's some good stuff right there. Um, and a powerful, you're a powerful example of what can happen if you do take the time to get things right in your mind and move forward. That's for yeah. sure. And then yeah. I'll just, <clears throat> I'll close out my, my background by saying that uh, I had an undergraduate degree from Cal State Long Beach in finance. And then I did an MBA there. 
and I was working at Pepsi in Los Angeles in manufacturing. And I had a, a good career uh, opportunity. I think <clears throat> Pepsi gave me a lot of opportunity and there was plenty of things to work on there. I got interested in statistics because I was kind of more of a numbers guy and I was on the factory floor because I'm also a people's people guy. And so, uh, and then, and then my boss said, Hey, <clears throat> since you like statistics, you should go see this guy named Dr. Deming. And they flew me to Washington, uh, DC. And I attended a seminar of Dr. Deming in 1989. I think it was 1990. Dr. Deming was 90 years old at the time. And yeah. I was just, a, I was a young guy and I, I just sat in the front row because I just didn't know anybody. And all the other people were super old, you know, like there was like 500 people in the room and they were all in their fifties or whatever. You know? Yeah. And <clears throat> I was mesmerized by what he taught in particular. He really laid the blame for the problems in companies on senior management. And as a young guy working as a supervisor in a factory, it all made sense because I could see that we were operating within certain constraints laid down by senior management and it would be you know it's nice to go and tell everybody work harder and here's your kpi and this and that but unless they improve the system that we were operating within it was very hard for us to move beyond that level of quality that level of output and <clears throat> so it made a lot of sense and then in 1992 dr deming came to uh los angeles and i thought well i'm going again and pepsi Thanks to Pepsi, they paid for that also when I was working there. <clears throat> and I did the same and sat down in the front row and just listened. And it really instilled in me the idea of um, understanding uh, a few things. The first one was that we operate within a system. And <clears throat> everything is a trade-off. You know, it, a great example. I mean, what, what the world thinks nowadays is that we've got all these great drugs that can help solve different problems. But what they don't realize is that um, that everything is taking from something else. We're not creating new things. So a great example of that is I had a client of mine many, many years ago said I, he stopped drinking coffee. And I said, why? And he said, I just realized that <clears throat> coffee was bringing all of my energy from the afternoon into the morning. <clears throat> so I didn't want that. I wanted a more even distribution of my energy. Now, for me... I drink coffee in the morning because I, because it does concentrate my energy in the morning. Right. And I do mm -hmm. get majority of my work done in the morning, but it made me really realize that you, you, you don't get things in this life without taking from something else. So I think Thomas Sowell is one of the great thinkers out there. And he said, there are no uh, solutions, only trade-offs. And so I just learned that everything's a system. And if you think you're going to squeeze in one area, it's going to have an impact on another. The, the second thing is that because I had been studying finance, I, I, I understood statistics. And then I started to understand from Dr. Deming about the idea of variation and the idea of um, that, that there, there is no such thing as, as, as an identical part. As an example, everything has some variation mm -hmm. and there's randomness underlying. And it, it's very easy for us to see that randomness. If I was to say, uh, you know, imagine we had 10,000 people in a stadium and we asked them all to stand up and flip a coin and we asked them to sit down if, you know, to go to one side if they flipped heads and to go to the other side if they flipped tails and then ask them to flip again and say, look, if you flipped consecutively, heads, heads or tails, tails, 
then stay standing. And if you flip heads, tails or tails, heads, sit down. And we went through that 10 times. We'd end up with 10 people on both sides. Now, I started learning how to apply this in the stock market. And that's where I really took off was working in the stock market. But the idea made a lot of sense that if we were to say that, well, 10 tails is bad and 10 heads is good, we could have had people with very good outcomes of 10 consecutive you know, flips of heads and 10 consecutive mm -hmm. flips of tails. And there's just nobody that's going to dispute that. You know, It's very clear to see the randomness in that. But when you start to look at people's behavior, our behavior, uh, what's happening in our companies, what's happening in our lives, people all of a sudden, they, they lose that focus on the, the randomness underlying things. So I think what I learned from him was the system way of thinking and then the, the randomness uh, underlying it. And once you understand randomness, then you, you kind of stop chasing your ch tail. I think what's happened, what happens for most people when they don't understand the teachings of Dr. Deming or that type of systems thinking is that they end up chasing after problems that are happening in their business, not realizing they're just random variation mm. and they're not really seeing the bigger picture. And it happens all the time in business. For instance, when they're giving out bonuses, how do you know that the bonuses you're giving out this year, what, what extent of that performance was driven by randomness? And that's very hard to accept because we are brought up to say, I'm in control. It's, it's my, I'm the one who shapes my destiny. And if I'm the boss, I'm like, it's up to you. I don't want to hear any excuses about randomness. Mm. But there's, there is randomness underlying. And so when I left California, I moved to Thailand to teach finance 30 years ago. <clears throat> and then within a year, I realized I'm not going to make any money teaching. Then I took a full-time job as a financial analyst in the stock market, what we call sell-side analyst. So I started analyzing companies at, for clients around the world. That was 1993. So we would have fund managers like Infidelity or something like that that would call and say, you know, I want to invest in Thailand and, you know, what do you think? And I would go through that with them. And well, that's a great place to, to, to analyze randomness and try to understand what's happening in the market. So I did that work for 20 years in the world of finance. And in 1995, my best friend had come to see me in Thailand and, and then earlier. And then in 1995, we set up a coffee factory in Thailand. Mm -hmm. uh, which I'm sipping some of that coffee right now. And, uh, nice. but we set up that coffee factory, Coffee Works, uh, 30 years ago, just about 30 years ago. And, uh, <clears throat> and that, that's really where we also, while I was head of research and running research teams and being an analyst in the stock market, I was also building and analyzing that business together with Dale. Dale's the managing director and he runs it. And I'm kind of from the outside looking in but we're mm -hmm. equal partners in it and we've managed to survive a lot of ups and downs. And oh, so yeah. to bring it to full circle, the way we met was the podcast where I have a podcast called my worst investment ever, where I interview people about their worst investment and what they learned from it. I've now interviewed more than 600 people and really what I'm on a mission to help a million people reduce risk in their lives. So I'm happy to be here to share. And so that provides like a lot of, framework for where I'm at now in my life. I, I manage money and I have, I have basically investment strategies that I provide, uh, mm -hmm. that are global investment strategies. So I have clients that are investing in those. And then I have what I call an outsourced CFO business or a value accelerator where I help companies 
that are mid-sized companies with management teams that really are looking for an exit. Mm -hmm. And they know that they're not going to get the exit value that they want where they're at right now. And so mm -hmm. how do we identify that? And from a financial perspective, make sure that their finances are at a point where when they exit, well, they exit their way. Mm -hmm. And this is why it's so awesome talking to you. Because when you hear your background from the starting at 17, uh, getting yourself clean, getting your mind and, and, and your, that part of yourself going, and then your incredible experience, you're only one of maybe three people I know that was ever in the room with Dr. Deming before. And I've been in manufacturing, I was in it forever and growing up and that is quite an honor to see him not once but twice and really understand what that is and and if people there there's people that are listening today that don't know who that is but if you're in manufacturing and you don't know who it is you don't go get a couple books or read a couple articles and you'll really realize what he did for the world not just us but yeah the, the book world. to get is new economics on amazon yeah and they've re-released it and <clears throat> It was his final book <clears throat> that came out when he, in his last year of his life in 1993. But that was, uh, <clears throat> that's a good, good way to start. And in addition, you know, the, the Deming Institute uh, produces a lot of stuff. They've got yeah. something called Deming Next, where you can do training and learn more about what his teachings were. And then you can also listen to the Deming Institute podcast, where I'm, I'm hosting and interviewing a lot of people who, are those remaining people who have met with him and really knew him, you know, personally, as well as others that are just trying to think about what he's doing and how do we apply that? Yeah. And that's incredible that the, the podcast talk about that. So, so you've got, so you got two podcasts you're doing actually, and the, the worst investment ever. Now it's 600 episodes on that. Holy cow. That's, you must've heard some real stories in that. <laughs> I'm relentless. I just keep going like the yeah. energizer bunny. But I, I, I've heard a lot of different stories. And in, in some cases, you know, there's stories that people haven't told before, or they haven't really thought before. And as I was saying to one of my guy, one of my, you know, people that came on the show last week was, uh, it's a little bit of a confessional for some people, because they haven't really worked through that pain. And, Ultimately, when we talk about our worst investment ever, we're really, you know, talking about something that's very sensitive and, and it costs us time and energy and, and, and pain and suffering. And so I appreciate the people that come on the show because I remember I had um, a guy I invited on the show through LinkedIn many years ago and <clears throat> he wrote back, interesting idea, not my style. And I just realized, yeah, there's a lot of people that do not want to talk about that. But for those yeah. that do, and I guess you can look back and start off where we started this conversation about looking at our past mm -hmm. and overcoming it. And you can see why that podcast is so interesting to me. And my goal, you know, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And I'm yeah. doing that by getting people to share their stories and sharing that out with the world. Yeah. And so it's a fantastic thing. And I would say I can I can very quickly summarize the six lessons that I've learned. Very good. Let's hear them. Okay. 
So number one, the, the most, 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 I mean, I'm an analyst, so I, I, I listed them all out and I analyzed them. The most common mistake is fail to do research. It's incredible the number of people that jump into things without doing the research. Mm -hmm. And I, I look at a, a, one of my stories, uh, uh, Josiah Smelzer, which was one of my earlier stories, but he was trying to flip houses <clears throat> and he thought he would save money by not doing all the inspections beforehand and paying the money for those. And what ended up happening was he bought a money pit and it dragged mm -hmm. him down, you know. So uh, that's the lesson is really do your research. And what I like to tell people is focus on the upside, focus on the return. Focus on what you think is the potential here as a start, which brings us to the second most common mistake, which is uh, that people basically fail to properly assess and manage risk. And assess risk is how we look at something before we buy into it and manage it is how we handle it <clears throat> when, when we do have purchased it. For instance, just recently, in fact, I in one of my portfolios, we have a small exposure to the financial sector and I had to make some decision about it. I had to decide how we're we gonna manage this risk. Now, one of the ways we manage this risk is we have other investments that move opposite, such as gold. So financials go down, gold tends to go up. So we've managed it through some sort of diversification, but eventually I decided that, well, we're gonna cut this out of our portfolio because it's just not worth the ride right now. And that's mm -hmm. the idea of managing risk, which means cutting uh, loss. And assessing risk really is how we look at something before we get into it. And I'll tell you just a quick story for Coffee Works, my company, Dale had an opportunity to expand <clears throat> our business to Vietnam, or we could expand in Thailand further. And he, he, we agreed that he would look at it. He went to Vietnam, met with the people, he did a lot of research, and he put together a very good analysis over a month or two. And we agreed we would meet on one Monday night. I went over to the office after my work, and we sat down and he presented the case. We're like, yeah, pretty good, not bad. You know, there's some upside there, but it wasn't as huge as we wanted, but it, it, it was doable. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So it was pretty exciting. And then after that, we went and had dinner. And then a week later, we met to talk about the risks. And what we did is we separated our discussion from return and risk. So that's why I was saying, focus oh, on the return. Yeah. Focus on the return. Enjoy it. Think about it, right? And don't bring the discussion of risk into that. Allow yourself to go there and enjoy what you think the potential is. Now, once we sat down and went through the risk, we think, holy crap, this is more expensive, much more difficult, more complex because we're going to a new country. The risk to our capital is high. And we could just expand within Thailand at a much level, lower level of risk and achieve almost the same amount of revenue. And we decided not to do the expansion. We decided to stay and expand within Thailand. So... When we look at return and when we look at risk, I, I highly recommend that you separate your discussion on those two. Yeah, that's really good advice. Holy heck. Yep. <clears throat> and number, number three was driven by emotion and flawed thinking. There's just so many times that people just get caught up in emotion. They get caught up also in not really thinking things through. There's all kinds of behavioral biases that we can do. And the way to overcome this is to <clears throat> find someone who's a third party who's not interested in this, but, you know, can understand what it is and mm -hmm. sit down and talk with them. And I always tell people, you know, the best tool for listening is writing. So when they're speaking, 
you damn well better be writing. And because it's very difficult to speak and write at the same time. And that brings us to number four, which is misplaced trust. It's incredible how, um, if you think about many people in business, they're really tough, you know, in negotiations and, you know, they're, they're, they really put the pressure on, but when they come out to their personal life, someone walks along and all of a sudden they trust this person and then they send money to them. I have one of my guests who's a very, you know, successful financial guy. And basically someone called him and said, Hey, I've got great opportunity for property right outside of London. And it's going to be a, a booming time, you know, and blah, 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 blah. Next thing you know, within a week, he'd send him $12,000 and he never saw that money again. So misplaced trust is number four. Number five is failed to monitor their investment. I know most of the people listening to this are super busy. And so you end up thinking, getting excited about an idea. I'm going to buy silver or whatever that thing is. Mm -hmm. And then you get into it and you realize, oh my God, I didn't, you know, I, I don't have time to monitor this. And instead of exiting it, you just kind of let it sit there. <clears throat> and then it, most cases it, withers away but you know some cases you could be lucky that you didn't look at it and it becomes something huge but mm -hmm. that's number five fail to monitor their investment so what i suggest is that you set up a monitoring system where once a month you set a date and you look at it <clears throat> and then number six is invested in a startup company and this is one of the ones that is so <clears throat> common that people are losing their money on and basically i like to say go into startup knowing that um, it's likely you're going to lose all your money. It's binary. You're either going to lose all your money or, well, it's not really binary. I'd say you're either going to lose all your money, you're going to barely survive for 10 years and then exit, or you're going to hit it big. And yeah. when we look at the statistics about businesses surviving, I don't know what the latest statistics, let's say five or 10 out of 100 survive five years. I don't know. what Do you know what those statistics are these days? Yeah, I read something recently said that a startup going 10 years, it's like less than 10%. Yeah. yeah. And I would say that that's massively overstated. Yeah. That it's I, I probably, would too. I would thought that was pretty high. It's probably closer to one. If, yeah. if we remove companies that aren't paying dividends. Yeah. And what I always tell people is that um, if you're starting a business, the first thing you got to do is you got to rush to get to $5 million in revenue. The reason why you need $5 million in revenue is you need to be able to afford the management team to run the business so it's not a one-man show. The second reason why you need to rush to get the $5 million is infrastructure for business is expensive these days. Whether that's regulatory compliance, you know, government just never stops coming down on business and people and it just grows in complexity and cost. Or whether it's the... Uh, ERP systems that you need and the software systems that you need, it costs serious money to have a infrastructure for running a business. So one of the things I always tell people is, you know, in the beginning of business, what usually happens is what I call chasing revenue. And that's where we go in with an idea. We're going to start this type of business, but we find out there's no customers or, you know, bad idea. Mm -hmm. So then we start shifting and we start chasing revenue in every direction. But you can't be in chasing revenue mode too long or else you're not going to really get a direction to go. But once you get that direction, you've got to try to get to that 5 million mark as fast as possible. Because in the end, the value of a business ultimately is the cash flows that that business can generate. Mm -hmm. And that brings me to kind of my last part, part that I would say about 
my experience and what I try to bring to companies is that I, I created a scorecard that I used uh, for Coffee Works because I was finding it hard to kind of train the management team to understand finance and how do I keep them focused on the, the right things. So I came up with a system for measuring the financial performance of any company relative to its global peers. I have a database of 27,000 companies and I use this whether I'm picking stocks in the stock market or whether I'm supporting or what I call mentoring a, a startup company or a you know, mm -hmm. mid-sized company that's going for exit. And that is we update that scorecard every single month and we meet as a management team and I focus them in on what I call the four drivers of value. And so because I'm academically grounded in the financial aspect, I can talk specifically about what is going to drive the value of this business. So if your business has a value of $100 million and we can move the needle on the four drivers of value, we could move that exit value from $100 million to $120, $130, $150, depending on where you are right now. And that difference makes a huge difference. So that's really you know, what I do with companies to try to help them. And what I do basically is that it's a simple scorecard, one page with no financial ratios. And that's what makes it so that everybody on the management team can understand. And then I focus everybody in on the four, you know, obviously we've got, everybody's got work to do. The purpose of this is not to overload people, but to start to raise their awareness about the weakness in this business relative to global peers and then say, mm -hmm. <clears throat> what are the steps we're going to take? And within 12 months, if you look at that scorecard every single month, you meet as a management team together. And I basically coach them on how to, you know, look at that, identify what are the steps you want to take. Now you've got a good measurement scorecard that's going to come back and tell you whether you're making progress or not. And because I've done analysis from an academic style of analysis to try to understand uh, 27,000 companies, I look at their performance on a quarterly basis. And then that's our benchmark that we use. But I also understand when a company's moving up or down in that scoring, how does that impact the market value of that business? And we can see exactly how much you can increase the value of your business if you can move you know, up in that scorecard. Mm -hmm. And that's really a huge thing that, that I do and I love to do because what I always tell people is that I teach finance and I tell my first year finance students when I teach, I say, finance adds no value. Well, you can imagine how scary that could be if you're just choosing a major of finance and you're thinking, wait a minute, I came here because I thought that this was valuable. Well, what I'm saying is that what brings value in business is your product and service. That's it. The better it is, the better you can deliver it. People will pay more for it. And that is what drives value, not finance. Finance is a tool. And so, as I say, finance is a mirror. And so my job is to make sure that the mirror is nice and clean, scrubbed up and in your face every single month. And if we can do that, we're going to get the feedback we need from the finance department of a company or the CFO of a company. That feedback then needs to be understood by the whole management team. And that's the big problem is that, you know, people don't always understand it. <clears throat> and then a finance, a CFO tends to talk in hieroglyphics for most people, you know, when they listen to all yeah. the different things that they say. But if we have a standard scorecard, we look at it every single month and we're just relentless about that, that continual focus on the same thing 
Just that focus drives value. I'm just going to let people think about that for a minute because it's just something that we do with every client. You got to get scorecards, and if you don't have them, and and what you're talking about the monthly scorecards where you're measuring business value and business value relative to peers and, and really not just going, uh, you know, here's a multiple of EBITDA or something like that, but understanding how your EBITDA as a percentage compared to revenue, compared to the market, you know, all around like that can really affect your value because their valuation ranges within a given industry or a given size of a company. And you can be at the bottom of that range or, fall out or go way out of the top, depending upon where you're at in that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's totally your choice, you know, where yes. you want to be in that. And it's yeah. tough to get to the top of that. But if you, the reason why companies sell at higher multiples is because they have higher growth and higher uh, profitability. And so that's the key. And you I'm get those measures up <clears throat> and you get the multiple. What's fascinating about the way I go at it is that there are other people, many, many people like yourself and many others who really understand the operations of business. Maybe how do you fix the sales department? How mm -hmm. do you improve the quality? And all of those are methods that are exciting and very great. And many of them are very important and valuable, but they do not matter if they do not move the financial performance. And ultimately, yep. I am measuring the end result. And the end result is what are you producing from the things that you're doing? Yep. And some things take a long time too. I mean, it's like, that's why you need time to look at that on a consistent basis. When I engage clients, I engage them for 12 months. That's it. No shorter, no longer. If they can't make substantial progress in 12 months by getting the feedback of the scorecard and our discussions that we do about what they're doing, that's also a very valuable lesson. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah, because you're you're right. If there's nothing changing in 12 months of understanding where you're at and your 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 team, you're you're not making some significant changes from the information and the feedback you're getting, then you're not going to. Yeah, I mean, you're learning something maybe about your industry, about your product, about your service. You may be learning something about your management team. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. that yep, they may not have the capacity to bring it to the next level. And then that's a valuable lesson right there. You may decide, okay, I think it's time to exit, you know, at what yes. we've got. Yes. Yeah. Because really at there's, there are these inflection points in businesses and, and if you're an owner, a founder or, or an owner in a business, or even a, even on the board of a business that's seeing these kind of things and don't realize those when you hit one of those inflection points, you can really spend a lot of time floundering, whereas, you know, it is a point to where you're either going to have to look in the mirror and go, we are going to invest heavily into getting into the next phase. And that means that the people, the systems, the customers, everything might have to change for us to go to that next level. Or, as you said, it is really our best time to get out now. Yeah. One of my <clears throat> guests, former guests on the podcast, Weldon Long, wrote uh wrote a book called the power of consistency and it's such a great book and i i love it i highly recommend it and uh <clears throat> you can get it in the aud audible i would definitely mm -hmm. listen to the book but uh you know when you consistently focus on something you have the potential for creating it and it's important to consistently focus on it and he 
constantly faced setbacks because he didn't start his his career and his journey from a cushy place. He started it from prison. And he was in prison for a long time before he got out. And he was faced, faced a huge amount of challenge and resistance to build himself out of that. I highly recommend this book. But every time he faced the obstacle, he asked himself, how badly do you want it? Mm -hmm. And so my challenge to anybody listening, to anybody viewing, is to ask, how badly do you want it? You know, when you get to be our age, you know, at my age, I'm getting close to 60. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's exit time. Yeah. You know, I got five, maybe 10 more years in me. And yeah. it makes a difference now. Yes. And so how badly do you want it? And are you ready to take the steps to say, I've got to face this? So I think as we come towards the end of this, I would say that um, we kind of go back to the beginning. Turn and face your demons. Yes. And say that I need to overcome this. And that's really what I do. And I, I'm, there's no magic to what I do. And I'm not a consultant. I don't come in and look at a business and say, this is what you got to do. What my job is as a facilitator, a little bit like in group therapy when I was in treatment, it's like, all right, we've identified the problem. What do you think are the next steps? And then we meet the next couple of days and say, okay, you thought that maybe writing it out would be a good thing. And how did that feel? Did that work? You know, but <clears throat> with the feedback mechanism of the financial statements, yes. it's raw and it's powerful and it's strong and it's harsh. And it, we can have all the great talk and all the great ideas, but in the end, the end, the question is, is it moving the needle? And exactly, you know, there, you can have all kinds of discussions about what you want to do in this world. And, you know, some people come to me and say, well, I'm not so interested in the profit or the value. And I say, I always say, yeah, you, you, you may not be interested in profit until you, until you're, until you're suffering the pain of loss. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you may think, holy crap, maybe that profit and the, the, what it provides my company uh, to hire the right people and, you know, provides my people to get good pay and get good bonuses. And it provides my people to be able to donate and make the world a better place with the profits mm -hmm. that we make. But if you don't make it, you ain't got it. Yeah. Yeah. Andrew, I just want to say thank you so much for stopping by today, man. It's been a pleasure listening to you and, and learning from you and, I also want to take just a moment real quick before we end up the show. I said, Marcia, hey, thanks for stopping by. She had a yeah. whole bunch of great comments. Joey Oge, excuse, excuse me, I butchered her name, but thanks so much for stopping by. And all the other people that dropped the comments here and everyone that was listening, I'm going to tell you what, go back and listen to this from the beginning because as he was going through the, the six different uh, things at risk that he see pe that people overlook or don't things that they don't consider in business. And, and the other goal that you dropped here, I just want to say, go back, listen to that and, and uh, go back through it because it will help you and your scorecard. I cannot agree with you a hundred percent, 200%, 500% because listen, at the end of the day, you need to create financial results with, with these things. It's, it might not be this week, this month, might be next year, but those financial results have to come from the work you're doing. And, and if it's not, it's not. And face yeah, the in music. Fact, if uh, somebody's listening to that, listen to this and they think this matters to me, to you personally, then just go to myworstinvestmentever.com, my site. You yeah. can go to the connect 
button there with connect with me that comes directly to my personal email and and then you can ask me and you say you heard from this from exit exit your way and from this discussion and the faces of business and then uh, and I'll provide you with your own scorecard for free and let's look at where is your business I'll need Very I'll need cool. 3 years of data and but I only need revenue profit and assets that's all I need and I don't need the name of your business don't tell me the name of your business keep it completely confidential Very and cool feel free to contact me and then I'll I'll do that Yes and when we say that again Andrew what the best way you said worst investment ever Yep that's that's your that's website it. All right. That's where you want people want to get a hold of Andrew uh, his website there. But Andrew Stotts, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for talking about, you know, helping reducing founders business risk. And it was just such a wonderful conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you. David, thanks for having me. I appreciate it too. All right, everyone else. Thanks for listening. And we will be back again with another interesting guest on the faces of business. Have a great weekend, everyone.